0: Welcome to Amato's 5th Quarter Podcast. Listen to incredible conversations with former high-profile AFL, A-League and NBL players who discuss their lives and respective professional sporting careers. Previous guests welcomed on the podcast include... Dustin
1: Fletcher, Al Gryce. Travis Stalker. Everybody. Tyson Edwards. Brett Eugene Grinnell. Kevin Brooks. Jack Fitzpatrick. Bill McDonald, Sam Jacobs. Calbert. Marcus Surrey. Sean Ridditch. Jamie Spackleton, Andrew Vlahov, Graham Korn, Brian Curl, Jason McAmanis, Chris McDermott, Mike Ellis, Kevin Litch, Matt Smith, Michael Brendan T, Jordan
2: McMahon, Brett Burt. Matt Shanahan, Rupert Stathwell, Dusty Radcliffe, Anne Gibson, Ricky O'Lachlan, Dylan Addison, Daniel Georgeski, Dom Tyson, Sergio Fenday, Adam Snyder, Ricky Brick, Rick Latson, Rod Javison, Toby Thurston, Scott Lee, Andrew Jarman, Evan Kostopoulos. Mm-hmm.
0: Links to all previous episodes are down below for your listening pleasure. But without further ado, let's get into this next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter.
1: They've got a brand new stadium, a big one, and they're going to put a big flag up there in a moment because the Eagle has landed for the premiers in 2018. There it is. Brisbane have won it. The orange order is restored. It took just one season of transition. The Brisbane Roar premiers, now title winners, champions of Australia. The 17-year drought is over.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast, Episode 45. Thank you all very much for tuning into the show. Hopefully, you continue to enjoy listening to the content. This is your host, Daniel. All is very good, very blessed, very grateful from this end. And as always, hoping all is well for you listening from your end. Just want to give a big shout out also to the partners of the podcast for their ongoing support, Cappuccinos and Pete and Pedro, Most appreciated and you'll learn a little bit more about them and the services they provide a little later on. But moving on, installment number 45 of the podcast, we have the pleasure of being joined by former Adelaide United player, Evan Kostopoulos. Of course, he played 21 games in the A-League for Adelaide United, scoring two goals. Now you're going to hear a lot of interesting topics throughout his life and his career. He grew up in a Greek family. His late father, of course, was born in in Greece and he discusses how his Greek heritage played a strong part in his life and was one of the core reasons he began playing football, rising up through the ranks to eventually being given an opportunity in Adelaide United's first team by Aurelio Vidmar, who now the coach of Melbourne City. We discuss his famous brace against arch-rival's Melbourne victory in that iconic 4-2 result And how this game was the highlight of his career as well as the low light of his career. And how this particular occasion actually became the beginning of the end of his career. So stay tuned for that. We also delve into some poor decision making by agents. And how his career as a professional was all over a lot earlier than what it should have been. And also what he's doing with himself these days with a young family and a successful business post football. So just a nice quick and short introduction Let's get it underway. Amato's fifth quarter podcast, episode 45, in conversation with Evan Kostopoulos.
2: Today
1: is going to be the day that they're going to throw it back to you. By now, you should have somehow realized what you got to do. I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do
2: about you now.
1: Brilliant run, chance here, Evan Kostopoulos, and he celebrates in front of the travelling victory fans. On the six yard box, should the keeper be coming for it, Kostopoulos doesn't care, it's a good header.
0: Marto's fifth quarter podcast, episode 45, in conversation with Evan Kostopoulos. Evan, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast tonight.
2: No worries, mate. Thank you for having me.
0: Anytime. So, it's now been 10 years since you last played for Adelaide United. Since then, you've played some NPL and you're also self-employed now. Could you give the listeners an update as to what you've been up to lately and where you're at in life now? Yeah, no problem. 10 years, that's
2: a long time. Since then, I've been involved with a lot of different things. Post-football, like most players, I guess, you try and find your feet and try and find your identity in in, in what your job is after sport. And currently, after many different ventures, I, I run a company for the last, I'd say, five years called York Hamilton, which basically is a global talent acquisition. So we basically provide remote staff to Australian businesses and also now people through global immigration so that's obviously bringing people overseas to work in Australia so that's what I do now.
0: Very interesting and, and your story is very interesting as well so your time in the professional game was quite short you only played the 21 games in the A-League and it was all over by the age of what 22 or 23. What are your thoughts on professional athletes having other interests and avenues outside of sport? Of course the main focus should be your career and making the most out of it. But do you think a professional athlete should always have a plan B and an idea of what you may want to do post-career?
2: Of course. I mean, there's, there's a few ways to answer that question. A lot of athletes just stick to plan A. If you put everything into plan A, then there should be no plan B in sight. But other people have the door open, so you know there is a backup plan in case it doesn't work out because really sometimes it's out of your hands as well i'm a prime example of that all i knew up until i guess 23 24 was how to kick a ball and that's all i was ever planning to do but hindsight yeah it it makes sense to have something there or have guidance to enter into the life after sport so there's different opinions but my opinion is you definitely should have a plan b it's not necessarily a plan b but it's i guess still focus on what you're doing in sport but also have a an idea to at least start thinking about it so then you know you're not spending so much time when you're not on the field working out what you're going to do so was playing
0: professional football something you always wanted to do primarily like doing some research you seem pretty business minded and, and career orientated was was football the main aim growing up or did you have other ambitions through your teenage years
2: my late father was an obsessive soccer person so it was pretty much in my blood that what I was taught to do—that's all I really knew. So it definitely was all I wanted to do for for most of my upbringing. Always was quite interested in other things in business and maybe a bit entrepreneurial by nature, but definitely soccer was the only thing that was in my mind again up until you know 24, 25 years old.
0: Do you still watch the A League? Do you still follow Adelaide United?
2: From time to time, I do. I'm not the fanatical type to, you know, watch games and stay up late to watch the EPL. And I love playing the game. I was involved in different areas as well post playing. You know, I've coached juniors. I was involved in a player agency for a number of years when I post retirement. But I was never the type of obsessive, get soccer person to watch three, four games in a weekend. That, that wasn't me. I've watched a from time to time, but now I've got a young family and and business, so. It's hard to find time to sit down and watch too many games, but some players i played with, some players I coached, some players who were were youngsters coming up when I was there, so I tried and touch base and see, obviously, the connection of people who were still around at the club, for sure.
0: Taking you back to early days, so born and bred Adelaide, South Australia, Kostopoulos, of course, a Greek name. Can you give us some info into your upbringing in terms of your family life? Of course, you mentioned your late father and also your ethnicity and how that played a part in your life and who you are as a person.
2: Yeah, I've actually got a, a really interesting story with, to connect the ethnicity part to it. And I, and I still remember it so clearly that my grandfather, I remember West Adelaide back in the NSL well, they, they won some game. I don't know what it was specifically, but I remember him coming home crying from happiness and that's when I realized how important it was to people. And from that point on, obviously coming up as a junior with West Adelaide and, and obviously an ethnic background, it was just a part of what you did growing up. My dad was a coach too, so I spent five days a week at a soccer ground, at B27 to be specific. And then, you know, at a few other clubs too. It's definitely, you know, when, when, it makes sense, when these people come from overseas, it's basically what brought them all together. and. If I still look at my, my young boy and his cousins, it's something we pass down as well. And the kids are at the park playing the game that we all love. So it definitely connects to our culture and something that I remember stories about like my grandfather and, and, you know, the passion my dad had for the game. It was basically like a release I, I feel for them from, you know, whatever they had to deal with to get here. And it makes sense now if you look at the game, there's so much ethnic background involved in the game. And I think Australian football. Without it, probably wouldn't be the same.
0: No, because there's a big core of the Europeans that came to Australia and, and they played football. And that was the main thing that connected them together, you know, the Italians and the Greeks and Serbians and Croatians. That's one thing they all had in common was that they loved football.
2: Yeah, exactly right. And if you look at, you know, the, even the Socceroos, to so today there's different ethnic backgrounds still involved, especially you, you, the Europeans, even in the in the 90s, there were so many, you know, I guess, you Yugoslav, could put them in in that bracket back then you know there was five or six of them starting for the soccer room a lot of them yeah a few greeks few italians for all
0: and a lot of them first generation australians like they're born here but their parents born overseas
2: exactly right
0: so you first or second generation australian were your parents born in greece
2: so my father was born in greece my mother was born here okay but yeah you know growing up speaking greek and my first language as a kid, because that's just what everyone spoke around me. Yeah, I was going to ask you um, if you could speak Greek. I wouldn't say fluent anymore, because I don't speak it, <laughs> but yeah, I definitely understand it, probably all of it. Okay,
0: and where, whereabouts did your dad come from in Greece?
2: So he came to Australia in the 60s, from Corinth, he's in Corinth, central Greece, a narrow away from Athens, yeah, So and my mum's from an island called Samos, he's near Turkey, so yeah, we, we definitely grew up with our heritage quite close.
0: So football was obviously the main sport of choice. Did you ever play any other sports growing up?
2: Football was the main thing. I was involved through high school in cross country and athletics. I was quite good at jumping and high jump and those kind of things. I think I've got like an under twelve record for hundred or ninety meter sprint at a time, and that was like five years. So pretty quick yeah. when I was young. I and mean, then you as got I got go- older, I just got slower and slower.
0: You could have gone to the Olympics.
2: I don't think so. <laughs> but it was good fun. It was good
0: fun at the time. Yeah, nice. So when was it that you began to take your football a little bit more seriously? When did you perhaps realise that you were potentially good enough to play at an elite level?
2: To be honest, I enjoyed the game. I didn't really plan on, like, I want to be a pro. I just loved it in the moment. I went to Greece when I was 15. There was a, I don't know, an academy, but basically a training group called was a German training camp sort of program. And I was selected with a few other boys, back from Adelaide to go to Europe. And we went and played in that tournament against Barcelona, Villarreal, Portuguese teams. And that was great. And on the back end of that, I stayed, and I had a few trials with three clubs, Panionios, Lodista, and AUK. And I did receive a few offers from those three, but came home to finish school. And at that point there, I thought, okay, well, I enjoyed that, I wish I could stay, and potentially that's when I started thinking, okay, maybe maybe I can do this. What was the standard
0: like in Greece back then? I assume it was higher than the Australian League.
2: Well, apparently, yeah, apparently so in the senior things. Obviously, I was 15. The people I was playing with were youth teams, but even that, the, the technical level was really, really good. Professionalism a bit average, yeah, unless you go to the bigger clubs. Even AUK was quite low in terms of the facilities and so forth. There's a bit of a strong mentality around the first teams in those countries, that like they get everything, and then everyone under it doesn't really get that much focus. So it was a bit hit and miss in that aspect, but in general, the first teams were, were really good. Planyonios at the time, who wasn't actually training with the first team, they were playing the you know, Europa League, Ladislaus as well. As, yeah, that's huge I level. Guess, yeah. Five clubs in Greece at that time. So they're all big clubs, and it was just amazing because I didn't really think it to be as good as it was. It was definitely a good experience.
0: Can you explain the process of actually getting onto an A-League squad? The pathway is a bit unclear even today. How did the opportunity come about in terms of just getting a position on an A-League roster?
2: Yeah, yeah. So obviously just to connect the story, so yeah, obviously I came back to finish schooling with a plan to, to go back to Greece, but that never happened. And then I was at Olympics where I got my, my first team debut. Under uh, Peter Yaksha, who's a very well-known guy in the local leagues. I think he coached at a lot of clubs. He's a very old-school kind of coach, but he's was, he was excellent. And then after uh, I think a year and a bit there in the state league two, or, or which was the second division basically back then, I went to Adelaide Comet. Actually, I was also in the second league with Barney Smith as a coach. And then yeah, I was playing a bit of first team football, and I was actually I got a call up as a backup player for the youth team. So I wasn't even really selected to go for trials. I was just a backup because there was the players missing. And I went in and yeah, I didn't even think I was gonna play and they put me on and I scored three goals in like ten minutes or something. So yeah, and a few more obviously because of that I stayed and continued trolling and, and got a few more good games in the trial period and earned myself a youth team deal from, from nothing. So that was good and, and from then obviously being in the youth team for a few times. However I actually got my first team debut after six months from being a fill-in player to getting my first team debut with Vidmar. It's sort of all within a flash obviously even to get into the youth team it was hard and then playing games in the youth team was hard because a lot of first team players were coming down at the time but then eventually I started getting a few games off the bench scoring a few goals got a starting position as the number nine in most of the games and then Yeah, Vidi called me up one day and said, you're coming, you know, train with us this week, and then you're coming to Wellington. Actually, Christchurch, to play against Wellington, and that's where I got my debut, I think I was 19 years old at the time.
0: Yeah, and I asked this question because despite the golden period of Australian football at the moment, so, well, certainly the best period that Australian football's gone through since the mid-2000s with, you know, the Socceroos last year and then the Matildas this year. And the A-League is very much the ideal platform towards bigger and better things for young players, and it's probably in the best position that it has been in for a decade. There's still a lot of talk these days about the unclear pathway and the difficulties for young players to get their way to bigger clubs and in bigger leagues. As someone who played here professionally, and you did spend some time overseas, what do you think still needs to improve from grassroots level and then abroad to make that pathway for aspiring footballers a a little clearer?
2: I think there needs to be a bit more of a structured system. I still feel in this country, everything is a little bit accidental. Like in regards to, there was no plan for, you know, let's use LA United as an example, for Irukunda, Toure, t Kamara even before, back, back in my day. Mabil another one. All these talented players who have come up, but I guess there wasn't really a plan for them to come up. They just came out of the woods and started tearing it up.
3: But yeah, I think, true. you know,
2: that, that, that can only get so far and it, it, there's an expiry date on that because, you know, after, you know, now you've got Toure, there's been three of them, which is amazing. But where's the next one coming from? And, and it's a bit maybe strange for me to say it, but I do think these are great accidents because it, cause they keep coming through. But it's like when they stop running out of Iroquenzas and Toure, it's like, well, what's next? What's the plan next? Because I don't know if there was a clear pathway for that to happen where... If it's a bit more structured and these players are identified really early and coming through the rain and really nurtured, then there's a chance that you know you get more of those players coming through. Where you know a lot of these players are coming, they're developing really quickly and jumping onto the scene. Is it coincidence that it's happening? Maybe it is a plan, but I don't think it was a planned process. I think if they put some planning into that and a bit more structure, it can happen more often. And then, you know, you've got a better chance of these players to continue going forward into Europe and other countries, which is what's happening again. But, you know, again, it's, I do feel like it's, it's almost a good accident, if that makes sense.
0: Do you feel that your journey was, was a good accident? Did you find that you fell into that role, just like you're saying, Irikunda and, and Mitbil in and these players?
2: Oh, well, look, I wouldn't put myself in, in their category. I think it was a bit different back then and, I do feel like the game's changed a lot since that time. I can't take away that I didn't work myself off for everything, even as short as it was. And I feel like I really had to work hard to get to that point. And even back then, there was a lot of competition. Young players weren't getting much of a go. So it was a different period. I do feel like, however, yeah, they, look, maybe it was. I, I do feel like there's a few players who did come through the ranks. And back then, there was AIS and Sassy, and players were moving across the system nicely. But I think once those corporations moved out of the way, it was a bit of an accident and the clubs were swooping on these players coming out of nowhere, where it should be, you know, they should be identified before they come out of nowhere, if that makes sense, because there's been players who Melbourne City have pounced on first, Bernardo being one of them and Yaya Zakouli and probably four or five others who were snapped in other states where, you know, they probably should have just stayed here if the plan was a bit clearer
0: for the the pathway. Alright everyone, it's time for a quick break on A5Q. I want to talk about Cappuccino's, the perfect mobile cafe for your event catering needs. Established in 2019 in Adelaide, South Australia, Cappuccino's is our family business. Here to provide you with freshly brewed barista made beverages on wheels using locally roasted la crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs cappuccinos caters for weddings and engagements sporting events school university and work functions and birthday parties just to name a few we pride ourselves not only on delivering warm smooth and delicious coffee at a great price but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile if our customers walk away satisfied, it means our job has been done correctly. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, contact us directly via phone at 0418 894 570 or email at Hotmail.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and help spread the word. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get back to the show. At that time, was it daunting walking into the club? What were your memories of your first season on an A-League squad, even though it was on the youth squad?
2: Yeah, look, it was it was amazing. And I guess it's probably, for me, it was the, the last bit of the old school era. What I mean by that is, even the years before at Olympic and, and at Comet, you know, you had those men and that old school era of, you know, authority. And, you know, the young players get their bottles and listen. And it was just, such a privilege to be around all these older players because as I said there wasn't as many young ones back then so it was like wow I'm one of the young guys and actually I was, I was the only youth player who got a game that year in the A-League so it was supposed to happen all quickly and overnight I'm um, you know at Comets in the second division playing with kids my age and in the second division on muddy pitches so then training with or, and playing with Flores and Van Dyck and Charles Dodd and these kind of guys it was quite surreal quite quick so yeah it was, a, it was an absolute privilege and I love that old school era which I wish existed a little bit more these days but it's just the way football's turned where
3: you know you had that
2: sense of respect and hierarchy which was amazing I think that's what taught a lot of young players how the game works so I definitely I missed that a lot towards the end of my career playing locally because young players didn't have the same Sort of everyone was equal, which was fine, but I think that authority was almost like a business hierarchy where, you know, you, you listen to the guys who have done it longer than you. I don't think that exists anymore. I think that needs to come in the game a bit more, to be honest.
0: Why do you think it needs to come in the game more?
2: I just think, you know, you need to earn your stripes in some respects of the older players have so much to teach the young guys. And I, I just got so much from these older guys just teaching me little tricks and tips and my last year of football, I was with Jimmy Sakinas, and he he loved little things like me telling the younger guys something or helping and giving that advice because he agreed that it's something that's been missing. And I think it's it's really come out of the game a little bit. Maybe just because the players are younger now, like the, the older players aren't as old anymore. They don't. It's not that era where the older guys are are, are the leaders and the younger guys listen and, and earn their stripes. So I think it's changed a bit in that respect. And I. I you know, not to say young players don't have respect anymore, but I think that sense of you know learning from these guys who have done it longer than you has come out of the game, and that's something that I loved about being a young player. Where I don't know if, if young players have that same guidance because you know the oldest guy on the team might might only be five years older than them. So I get it. The game yeah, that it makes it sense. That. Yeah, it's a bit of a hard thing to explain. It's just it's a culture thing that a lot of the people in my era loved because our age group was like. We were the last ones to get that. Little things like I remember one of the first sessions, Ian Fife just smashed me for no reason. But I guess without him saying anything, it was just like, okay, I get it. I need to earn my scrubs there. It was like that sense of respect and would help get things and get the bottles and listen. And I feel like that's lost a bit in the game.
0: Yeah, because your first season on the list was, well, really Ovidmar was the coach and you had... Many experienced players on the list. You had Travis Dodd there, Robbie Cornthwaite, Eugene Galekovic, Marcos Flores. Mark Rudan was there as well. You had a young Matthew Leckie also. And, and you're talking about looking up to the old guys and listening and feeding off of them. Did you have much to do with these guys during your early days at the club?
2: Yeah, 100%. And and I think that sense of respect in return from them came because... I also I knew my role, I knew my position, I knew I was the young guy and I had to work hard, but I feel like they helped me more because I was willing to be that guy where if someone comes with a thinking attitude, they would give him a really hard time. But I think as they saw that I was willing to learn and really wanted to do well and help the team, Travis and Corny, Cassio, Eugene, they were all really supportive and I felt like the team was really connected, no matter how old you were, because everyone knew their position and their role, and we were all fighting towards one thing.
0: And what was your relationship like with Aurelio Vidmar? A distinguished career in Australian football, just got appointed Melbourne City's coach. Yeah. Did you have much to do with him in that first season?
2: Yeah, well, he, he gave me my opportunity. <laughs> I wish he stayed, because when he left, Rene really he didn't rate me as much, so... Of course, Vinny was a fan of me, I, I guess I could say. I mean, he, he wouldn't be if he didn't give me a, a game, even above some of his A-League roster players. So, yeah, I definitely, he played a big part. He just let me do what I wanted, gave me freedom and gave me my opportunity. So, what, what's not to love, I guess he, he helped me in that respect.
0: When you're a youth player, how difficult is it to get a gig in the in the first squad? Now, I know that's you know, a hard question to answer, but... You did everything you could have done to get noticed. You won two leading goal scorer awards in the youth team. But as a youth player, to get a position in the starting 11, how difficult is that?
2: Yeah, yeah, of course it's hard. Like, I mean, if we looked at the, at the I guess, the front three, which is, I guess, where I played, it was, you know, you had seven, eight guys were all men in front of me. Uh, I guess Francesco Montaroso was probably the only young guy, but I think I was playing ahead of him. I was playing ahead of uh, Lloyd Owusu. Well, when I was there playing, I was coming off the bench ahead of them two. Ramsey was there, who I... I suppose he came the year after. Leckie was there. Um, Van Dyke, who else was there on the right side? Obviously, Flores is in that 10 position. Was Jite um, there at the time? I, I think he was still at Gold Coast, but there was... Anyway, there was someone else on the right-hand side. I don't, I don't remember who it was. But basically, it was, it was hard to get a game in. So just to get an appearance was extremely difficult. But it was a bit late in the season, it would have been good earlier, but I mean, just to, I didn't even think I was going to be in the youth team, let alone get an A-League game, so it was a privilege either
0: way. And when you finally debuted against Wellington Phoenix, you came on as a sub, that was your, your first appearance as a professional footballer, you mentioned it a little bit earlier. What did that moment mean to you, considering that's all that you'd wanted growing up and something you'd spent a large portion of your life working towards?
2: Yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was, it was obviously the biggest, intimidating stadium, and obviously a great experience traveling with a team that way. It's surreal, I guess. Any young player who has their debut has the same feeling. But I sort of, when you're, you know, in that position, I, some people get nervous, but I, I sort of didn't care at all. It was quite strange where I was like, all right, just, just another game, and there was not really much pressure on the game because it wasn't the greatest season for the club, so it was pretty relaxed. Thing, to be honest, but I enjoyed, obviously, every, every minute of it, and it was good, and I just remembered that last attacker was Cristiano at the time, and then it was Travis Dodd on the right-hand side, that's right, so, yeah, okay. you know, at least five or six,
0: up During your time at Adelaide, you were loaned to the Adelaide Cobras, now, if my timeline's correct, that was when Rini Coolen came in as coach, and you, you mentioned before that he didn't really rate you. Rini Coolen's time at Adelaide was pretty interesting, what are your recollections of that time, and... Did you have much to do with Rinny Coolen? On to sport, and Adelaide United's search for a new head coach has ended with the appointment of 33 year old Dutchman Rinny Coolen. Coolen has almost 20 years' experience as a player and coach in the Dutch Premier League and
3: First Division. The panel charged with finding Aurelio Vidmar's replacement sifted through some 60 applicants before appointing 43 year old Rinny Coolen. He wants to coach in typical Dutch style, as is being shown in South Africa. Attractive football with a focus on technique, structure, and organization. But the way you want to play it depends on the quality of the players. And that's one of the biggest challenges facing the Reds' new main man. He admits to having a lot to learn about his players and the A-League, and has less than a month before the season kicks off. I don't want too want so much information from, from, from people. They say something about the players. I want to see it myself. Otherwise, I was looking in
2: a different way to the players. Yeah, it was interesting. I sensed a lot of division within groups, to be honest. I was still training pretty much full-time with them. Actually, I was training full-time with with the first team, but I wasn't really getting a look in. And yeah, I did get loaned out. Obviously, the Champions League as the squad was quite big, but it was a a time when I think there was a bit of a transition. Players weren't as happy with with his style, and he brought in a few changes. He brought in a few players as well. Flory was one of them. Obviously, Jute came in. There's heaps of attackers. Hard for a to break in. Actually, maybe Flores came that year, not the year before. I'm trying to remember what year it was. His, um, his first anyway, season yeah, on was, the list was, was
0: your first season, oh nine ten.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's right, yeah. So, yeah, it was a difficult time it was really cool, And I think he was good, to be honest. He just, yeah, he didn't did personally, I, I don't think, rate me too much. But I think he was okay. It just it was an awkward year. I remember there was a few a few bust-ups and players unhappy. But that's football. you know, coaches where everything goes smooth. And, I mean, statistically speaking, well, he didn't do too bad. I think, you know, the year with Vinny wasn't great. But the Champions League was a good year because I think it was, they went to the quarterfinals. So, yeah, it was, it was okay with Rennie, but it wasn't, wasn't the greatest year for me, that's for sure. I still did okay in the youth team, but, yeah, didn't get a chance in the, in the senior team again.
0: When uh, Rennie Coolan was moved on, John Cosmina returned as coach for his second stint at the club. Did he have much of an impact on you returning to the club in a playing sense?
2: hundred percent. From the day he stepped in, he made me feel like I was going to be a part of his plan, which was great. Yeah, trained, played straight away. I think, actually, I got, yeah, so he took the back end of that season, gave me a few games, and that's when I got the contract offer. And then, yeah, from that next season, I guess I, I started playing the first few games and Played most of the games, obviously, in one season, so it's obviously a clear sign that he was a fan of mine, which was great. So I loved, I love playing against Posy. I had a always a connection with playing with or under these kind of coaches who were a bit more old school, rather than you know your modern day tacticians, and, and I sort of enjoyed that more, to be honest. Where players were just allowed to play freely, so I thoroughly enjoyed playing under Posy.
0: Halftime break here on Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast, and I'd just like to take a moment to thank everyone who has tuned into the show. The support is very much appreciated, and I hope this episode is finding you well. If you're enjoying the show, it would be a massive help if you could consider subscribing and leaving a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps feed the podcast algorithm and boost the show's visibility which will therefore allow for other Australian sports tragics to see and listen to the show. Five stars, of course, would be fantastic, but I'll leave that up to you. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it, because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. One of the most memorable original rivalries against Melbourne Victory, and this is what you're most fondly remembered for, your brace against the victory. So you scored two goals in the 4-2 win at home. Your most iconic moment in terms of Adelaide United career. What are your memories of that game and and scoring those two goals? The timing of the run
1: was right. Now Ferreira getting in behind. Brilliant run. Chance here! Evan Kostopoulos with his first goal for Adelaide United and he celebrates in front of the travelling victory fans. What a start for the Reds. Brilliant run by Ferreira in behind the near boy Gallagher at left-back. Well, that's exactly what you want. It's a long ball. You see Sammy Gallagher there. He gets really tight. He doesn't need to get too tight to him. And Ferreira just too quick goes right around him. He's still got the presence. of mind. It's a bit of a luck And that's exactly what you want both your wingers to do. As one's going and attacking a fullback down one side, you want the other one ghosting in at the back post to maybe get a tap in. It's exactly what he gets. Ferreira just got caught ball-watching. Costopoulos gets the right side of him, or the wrong side in Ferreira's point of view, and gets a tap-in.
0: So the set-piece has been left for Karuska.
1: Beautiful delivery! Make it four! And Costopoulos has a double. Karuska involved again. And this might be a record-breaking night in every respect for the Reds. Well, that's two set pieces. If you count the throwing, they've conceded. Ball in there is completely unmarked. He's just drifted right in between two defenders. Good delivery from Karuska. On the six-yard box, should the keeper be coming for it, Kostopoulos doesn't care. It's a good header. He heads it downwards, and once he does that, he's always going to score from that position. But no one picking him up. An incredible
2: 4-1 scoreline. Just over half an hour played. Yeah, it was such a strange and fast game. It felt like within five minutes we were 4-1 up or 4-2, whatever it was. And then it was like within 30 minutes, everything just stopped and the game slowed down again. So it was such a strange game. I mean, yeah, everything, I guess, fell our way, which was great.
0: Scoring that brace and winning against the arch rivals, was that the highlight of your career?
2: It was sort of a mixed emotion because it was a highlight in my career, but also a pinpoint that I'll never forget as... I guess, the downfall of my career at the same time, because I remember scoring the goals, feeling like, and it's not just because of the goals, but I felt extremely confident just in my passing and everything in that game, even the little things. And I was like, OK, I'm feeling now, and and not just that game, but a few games before then as well, and I felt like I was coming to my own. And I, and I can also recall at the end of that game, I was on the phone to my agent at the time, who was you know, saying, oh, Western Sydney want to sign you and Melbourne victory and this and that, a team in Spain. And I was like, okay, this is good now. But I'll never forget that conversation because I guess from that point there, I also was like, okay, I've got a lot of options. But then when everything went sour, I always go back to that conversation where I was on the top of the world and then that conversation was all false and it didn't end up that way it should have been. So it was such a an interesting day when I think back of it for
0: those reasons. That is very, very interesting. So when you say that was all false, because you've been on record saying that you didn't have the best agent and that perhaps, you know, he made some bad decisions on your behalf and left you clubless at one stage. And potentially if you didn't have an agent or if you had the right agent, your career could have been different. Is that where this has stemmed from?
2: Yeah, 100%. I mean, as a young player, you trust them to do what they need to do, and you believe everything they say, and I guess it wasn't false. These were actual offers, and even Adelaide, there was not even an extension with Adelaide, but I guess his decisions at the end was trying to... We caught out at the end that he was asking these clubs for a lot more money than than what he was telling me. Even the club in Spain, lucky we didn't go, they ended up being bankrupt a year later, so... It's very evident that his interests were above mine as a player, which was sad. And it's quite, you know, a lot of players jump to blame the agents, but I guess without sounding bitter or sour, mine's one of those cases where, I guess that's why I got into the player agency for a few years, because I wanted to protect players from agents like the one I had to deal with, you know. My regret sometimes is that, well, if I didn't have an agent, Worst case scenario, I would have just signed the extension at Adelaide, and I would have continued on. And who knows? Maybe I'd still be there today. Yeah, because you you're know, young not, enough to still be old.
0: playing. Yeah, you're 33.
2: Yeah, so you know, and and, I, and I, that's why I always go back to that conversation. And I think I trusted him on the back of that call, saying, you know, all these clubs. And 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 I guess what validated all of that is another agent I had a, a few years later was actually on the phone to Popovich. And he asked uh, the agent asked Popovich, "What? Why didn't you sign Christopher I heard you were going to sign him." And he pretty much threw a few swear words in and said, "Oh, that little, whatever word you can you can think of, asked for a hundred and fifty thousand or whatever it was at the time." Meanwhile, the agent was telling me it was seventy grand or eighty grand. So it was quite disheartening to find out from other coach a coaches and, and agents, you know, what was going on. It was sort of bit of regret in terms of, you know, you trust this guy to control your career and then realise that, you know, within an instant, everything's gone and you're without a club in the middle of Asia (laughs) and it leads back to poor decisions. I don't regret anything. I've got a beautiful family and business, but things also Players who dream of this stuff, they spend spent 20 years to do it. To get it taken away from me from some very poor and selfish decisions is something I wanted to make very clear and open. Without name-dropping, of course, who this agent is. uh, I'm sure most people know, but it's something that really I held close to my heart because I didn't want players to go through the same thing. And that's why we started that agency at the time.
0: If you don't mind me asking, do you blame your former agent for your career perhaps not being as prosperous as what it could have been?
2: Well, look, I I wouldn't say blame, you know. Who knows what could have happened, right? And I'm not saying as well that I was, you know, the next, you know, Matthew Leckie, but, (laughs) or, you know, Socceroo, but... We never know. Well, well, you never know, but I I think I I could have at least definitely been your, you know, your bread and butter A-League player for another six, seven, eight years for sure. And this isn't just me in the wind. You know, after multiple years, I, I spoke to different coaches and, tried to get more insight for what actually happened at that time even even Adelaide for example where I still remember you know Petrillo and Cosby at the time saying mate just sign the contract because the owners are going to take it off the table if you guys don't just make it and what was it just me but three or four of us hadn't signed yet these extensions and if I signed it uh, the picture would have been completely different and finding out this stuff after was it was this funny because you think yeah so my career could have been extremely different but I don't blame just the agent you know I'm responsible for not being so naive with getting maybe more feedback from people about this agent and maybe seeking other other guidance but I could see them blame people again I don't, I don't regret it but it could have definitely turned out different that's for sure
0: I'm sure you've thought about if your career continued whether you could have gone to, to Europe or you could have Gone to a World Cup with Australia or, or done these things? Do, do, do you ever get bitter about that, or do you just let it go?
2: Not anymore. I'm I'm completely content with how things worked out and and, and thankful. You know, you don't know what can happen. I mean, if I did become a pro, maybe I wouldn't have met my wife, and I wouldn't have two beautiful kids, and I yeah, you know, wouldn't have done whatever I've done and experienced in, in life after football. But I do think sometimes a great example is Craig Goodwin. He was just a train on player at United when I was there and, you know, you look at how his career blossomed and it's a reminder of within a split second, a few decisions can change the whole picture, you know? Like, I was extremely confident at the time and then finding out that, okay, crap, at United don't have an offer for me anymore because we didn't give them an answer soon enough. All of these other A-League clubs who had offers have blacklisted me because they assumed that I was a greedy young kid asking for crazy amounts of money. This club in Spain ended up going bankrupt, so thankfully I didn't go there. And you think it could have been so different. But I wouldn't say bitter. It's just sometimes, you know, if I'm watching the stock ruse, it, it comes into your mind, be like, well, I favor that guy. And I could have actually had the same path as him if those few things didn't happen. But by no means am I, am I bitter about it or, or I regret it. But definitely for a year or, or even two, I'd say that you, you lose confidence. So you're not even the same player anymore. You lose motivation because you're like shit. Well, you know I'm trying to get into different clubs. No club wants to speak to me anymore. I, I then went to Asia, failed a few medicals, and my head dropped again. And these line of things happen. But maybe that's just the way things were meant to be. Do I regret it? It's, not, it's out of my hands to say I regret it. But yeah, definitely was was really upset for I guess a year or two. Yeah.
0: The Adelaide United Melbourne Victory game, the four two result. That game yeah. sort of put you on the map per se. You were the talk of the town and you you know, you know were the biggest name in the A-League for, I guess, for that week. But from what you're saying, it sounds like that game essentially was the beginning of the end for you.
2: Well, that, that's what it definitely felt like because I uh, still remember that conversation. But I guess in, internally, it was probably the few games before the Melbourne victory. That just was more because I scored a few goals, it was a bigger deal, but... I guess even before that there was, you know, other offers and interest and stuff and that call I remember walking on the field, walking, you know, everyone was left high marsh at the time, but I was on the phone to him and he was saying that nah. and, and I really wanted to sign with Adelaide at the time. And he's like, No, no, you can't we need to make the best decision. There's four or five offers, we need to sit down and look at all of them and work out the best one. At the time I'm a young kid just getting a few games. I just said, I don't care about the money. I just even if I'm gonna get more interstate, I'm living at home, I don't have to pay for things, I live with my parents. And I was really eager on staying United and that phone call is the glimpses of when you look back at it being like, well, you know, if I just held my foot down and said, no, oh, I'm staying in Adelaide, I'm signing here at the end, uh, it would've changed the whole picture. So that definitely was the turning point that phone call, for sure.
0: Before we get into the final stretch of this episode, we need to take one more break here on A5Q. Now, this podcast is partnered with Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style. Unfortunately, most chemist products do not really achieve this efficiently. If you want high-quality results, you need high-quality products. Pete and Pedro, established in 2013 offers premium hair and beard grooming products and tools that will actually get in there, moisturise, rehydrate and clean your scalp, hair and beard thoroughly without burning a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, combs, brushes and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now, I would never promote or partner with a brand I did not use or trust. Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for years now and can confidently say... There are no better hair and beard products on the market, gentlemen. If you are looking to take your grooming game to that next level without breaking the bank, do yourself a favor and check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code Diamato10, spelled D A M A T O one zero, you'll score yourself an extra ten percent off on what is already a great deal. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. But for right now, let's get back to the show. (sighs) <sighs> Later on during this particular season John Cosmina walked out on the club in controversial circumstances a supposed lack of trust between he and the club Do you recall this time when he walked from the club And, and how the decision impacted the playing group And also yourself personally?
3: Hello again. Well, it's been another tumultuous day in the short history of Adelaide United with coach John Cosmina walking out on the club. Red players have been called to Hindmarsh. Tom Wren is there. And, Tom, why did Cosy quit? Well, Kim, he cited a lack of trust between himself and the club as one of the major reasons this whole thing has broken down. It leaves Michael Valcanis as the interim coach. We caught up with him exclusively just a few minutes ago. But as far as Cosy's concerned, he wanted to be the coach next season. Just last month, he was seeking a new two-year deal and the board said we'll address that on February 12th. He didn't make it that far, Kim, instead deciding to email Chairman Greg Griffin this morning saying he'd no longer be the Reds' coach. Players arrived at Hindmarsh a short time ago still in disbelief. Sorry mate, I'm speechless, I can't comment. Greg Griffin says he was completely blindsided by Cosmina's actions and believed they had a good affiliation.
2: Well I thought it was pretty good, but I've probably never been very good at judging relationships obviously.
3: But in an explosive letter to the Football Australia website this morning, Cosy says he can see no clear direction or vision at the club. He says decision making at management level is reactive and impulsive at best, and that he simply cannot and will not work in an environment which otherwise lacks trust.
2: Yeah, there was just it wasn't a connected synergy between him and the club, and there was there were, were a lot of changes happening with you know new personnel coming in, and I just felt like Cosie didn't agree with it, and 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 he moved on from from what I remember, and. I guess, to be honest, I think the damage for me personally was done before then because we lost 5-0 to Western Sydney and all of those renewals were then pulled off the table. So, and Cozzy did everything before then to make sure that me, I think it was me, Ramsey and Barbiero signed, but we didn't sign and then when that 5-0 happened, that's when all the contracts, the renewals were were put off the table. It was pretty much whoever hadn't signed before that point well now bad luck and need to wait for the end of the year. Within that time, Cozzy left and... It changed the whole picture. Yeah, I don't know too much about why it happened, but I just, from memory, yeah, they, they, they weren't on the same page. Yeah, but it definitely affected me. I think Gombau, who was an ex-coach, didn't mind me. And the, the ironic thing was my agent at the time, who didn't help me, was also the agent of Gombauer. So it's quite strange that oh, wow. I didn't re anyway. That's crazy. Um, but who knows what politics was, was behind that. And yeah, that's how it turned out.
0: When a coach has moved on, is it awkward around the club at all?
2: Oh, not really. Look, it happens so often. I mean, some clubs move coaches extremely frequently. It's pretty, pretty natural, um, to be honest. It's just, it's just a change mentally for some players because some were happy he left because maybe he wasn't in their plans. Some players, I guess, like myself, weren't as happy because I knew Kazi, you know, rated me. I guess there's mixed emotions, but mate, it's a part of the game. It's very common.
0: This particular season, 2012-13, 18 of your 21 matches were played. That was your time over at Adelaide United. Now, you spent a little bit of time playing in Sydney, and then you had a stint overseas. I'm interested to hear about this time.
2: So, post-Adelaide United, I was actually still training with Gombau for a few months, trying to earn a deal. Despite my offer being off the table, I said, well, maybe I can try and prove I deserve an offer, but at the time, yeah, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't, He obviously picked a different squad, and then I, I actually went to Thailand straight after that, and with a club called Supamburi, who, who had an offer for me, and I failed the medical, so it was like, after that point, there was just a series of, of bad luck, they discovered a, a problem with my knee, which I never was aware of, that I, I don't have an ACL in my left knee.
0: You don't so have an ACL?
2: Yeah, apparently, I've, I've never had an ACL in my left knee. So I remember being in Thailand and I was calling Peter, Peter Kitty and, do, and the doctor, uh, Dr. Illich at United, saying, guys, like, can you like, tell these people that I'm fine? Can we sign off something? And, and obviously, because I've been with them for a few years and the, the, the Thai club didn't want to take the risk because obviously they, they, they thought I was lying or maybe I did have a serious problem. But yeah, they didn't sign me. I then went to Malaysia and didn't get an offer there. And then, yeah, from there I went I went to Sydney because I didn't have any more pro clubs at the time. that The transfer window closed and I went to Sydney Olympic to just, yeah, try and get my confidence up, I guess, because there was a series of things that, you know, made me lose confidence and, I guess, drop down a level. And I spent, I think, seven, eight months there, scored a few goals, enjoyed myself thoroughly, uh, lived at a home, which was good. I was at South China in in Hong Kong, Hong Kong Premier League, which was a quite strange year because it was good. I felt I was getting myself back to a a better position, but I guess that was one season. And I just wasn't the same from the point mentally as well after what had happened in the last year or two. So that was a year and, yeah, came back and forth from Adelaide to to Hong Kong and in that time met my wife and, yeah, came back home after that season and didn't didn't renew in Hong Kong either. Again, I don't regret it, but then you think, what, what would have happened? Sort of. You think what would have happened in general, like your life, like where would you live, what would you be doing? Not necessarily in, in because I, I needed to play sport, but career just could have taken a different path. But you know, when there's a few signs that after Hong Kong, I guess my last pro, my reach the pro level was. I went to went back to Greece to tatianina after Hong Kong, and they had a, an offer for me. Went there, trial, great, signed the contract, and then pretty much came back home to get my stuff and farewell everyone, and then go back and got a call saying, office off the table, there's no money. I mean, you're welcome to come back, but we don't have any money to pay you. So for me, after that point there, it was like, you know what? It's not meant to be from, you know, this agent situation to the failed medical. And now this, for me, it was just like enough, enough. It just wasn't meant to be, which you, you look back and you think, as a young kid, you spent 20 years doing it. but. I look at the positives of it taught me resilience it taught me getting through challenges it taught me you know how to how to how to get on with things when things don't go your way so you know what I learned was was more than what I lost in the big picture
0: So you had a lot of bad luck throughout your career didn't you A lot of things just not going to plan a lot of people letting you down and just things just not going smoothly
2: Yeah you could say that It's a strange thing to talk about because I don't want to come across like I'm blaming things but
0: No, you you don't. You actually don't. I I can't.
2: Yeah, I can't not tell the truth with these situations because something I want as well people to be aware of, and some can be avoided, some can't. But it's just the reality of of the game, I guess.
0: Yeah, because you're. I mean, we mentioned before you're only thirty three, and certainly you'd be young enough to still be playing. You could still be playing in the A League for sure. I mean, there are some professional footballers that are older than you and still playing A
2: League. (laughs) Maybe this didn't happen for sure. But yeah, definitely, definitely not now. I've been drinking too many beers, I think.
0: <laughs> Throughout your time in professional football, what is something with the benefit of hindsight that you would do differently?
2: I guess just do, do my due diligence in trusting things. I mean, it's a bit hypocritical to say that don't have an agent because I was an agent for a bit. But I guess I was trying to authentically help players. But players don't don't you don't need an agent in Australia. That's I guess what I've learned from that. I guess at the time my my dad brought the agent in as well and you know, maybe we both should have done a a bit more due diligence and looked into him and got feedback because it was four or five years later I got told, oh, why did you sign with him and this has happened with other players and his connection at the club in Spain is, is not strong, this club's in trouble. So if I did that little bit of homework, it could have changed everything. You know, I would have maybe had another agent or not had an agent at all. And that's, I guess, why these are the stories why players are fearful for agents. Not to say they're all bad and some are really good, but at a young age, you, you definitely don't need one. That's, I guess, what I take from that.
0: Another issue you face during your time in the game is injury. So you battled knee and back pain. Injuries in professional sport, is the biggest challenge the physical or the mental?
2: I mean, the knee thing that happened, I guess, I wasn't. A, I obviously never knew about it until I did that medical so it's a hard one to say. I don't blame it. I guess once I did find out subconsciously, I felt like my knee there was a problem or it was going to give way or something. So it did affect me a little bit in that sense once I found out about it. And, you know, for example, I felt like the next club I went to in Malaysia, I felt that I didn't have confidence because I was thinking, well, I was scared. Oh, you know, I was a bit weary that I'm going to fail another medical and, it just those little things just change your confidence and so but but overall it's definitely the mental a lot bigger for sure because these challenges as much as they physically take a grind on you it's the mental aspect of dealing with this adversity at, at that age you know where you almost think if i didn't even try at age united at the time i wouldn't have had to deal with these things but right side so it is it's taught me resilience and getting through things mentally and physically
0: so is there any things you've learned in your football career that you apply now into your business
2: yeah for sure i guess just getting through diversity and being resilient and and dealing with challenges that's definitely the the most evident i guess reasons to bring i guess sports into business and obviously also your network and, and people you meet along the way is, is an important connection to bring across and uh, the, the main thing is resilience just to keep going if things are going to happen in business and If you deal with that stuff as a young athlete, then when you deal with them 10 years later, it's going to be a lot easier to get through.
0: Three last questions for you. Throughout your entire time in football, the best player you ever played with and why? Best player you ever played against and why? And lastly, best coach you ever played under and why?
2: Best player I played with, I think, was Karuska. Just a a freak visionary. The things he could see that just people couldn't see. Played against equally with Del Piero and Raul. Both not the quickest players, but the way they used their body was just ridiculous. Cosmina, cause he, he loved me.
0: <laughs> Evan, it's been fantastic to have you on the show and I wish you all the best in everything you're doing now with your business and also personally with your family. Thank you very much for your time tonight.
2: Thanks, mate. Appreciate it.
0: And that is a wrap for another episode I trust you enjoyed this conversation and I thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a review and I'll catch you all on the next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast.